Hello, hello, and welcome to Think Business Futures. I'm your host, Max Tillman. It's been a big week since the Treasurer handed down the budget 2021, but the biggest story, and certainly the biggest handout, was in the aged care sector. $17.7 billion have been allocated to making a once-in-a-generation change to a sector that has been plagued by horror stories from the Royal Commission, underpaid staff and limited career opportunities. But is almost $18 billion enough when the funding is set to be drip-fed over a five-year period? The Treasurer announced the plan as practical, but what do the experts think? Joining me today is Professor Michael Woods, an aged care industry expert from the University of Technology and from 1998 to 2014, the Commissioner and then Deputy Chair of the Australian Productivity Commission. The government has announced in its budget a figure of $17.7 billion as additional funding for aged care, uh, but that is over a number of years and therefore on a per annum basis. Yeah, we're looking at three and a half, maybe four billion a year, which is still a significant sum, but you spread it across a number of reforms and each one then becomes a bit less and a bit less as you go down the, the chain. Uh, a couple of the items are significant and important. Uh, I think particularly the increase in the number of home care packages. Most people, not everyone can, but most people like to live in their own home for as long as possible and providing more uh, capacity in the system, more funding for the subsidies to allow people to do that, uh, those who need subsidies, is a very good idea and 80,000 new packages. Of course, the issue there is where is the workforce going to come from? It's one thing to fund subsidies for people's care and support. It's another to actually have the workforce to provide it. Uh, and in that respect, the government has announced uh, a range of training uh, initiatives to improve the quality and safety of care through better trained workforce. But until you actually attract a high quality workforce in itself, uh, then that's the training is only half the issue. The other is um, ensuring that you do have the right number of people uh, who see this as a worthwhile career <clears throat> that they want to uh, be involved in. And the the central issue there is their pay, uh, their conditions, the security of their job, the career path that it may offer. And there's very little in this budget that does anything about those issues and particularly the, the pay that they receive. And until we increase the wages uh, that the workforce are paid, then um, we're not going to be seeing this as a, a highly attractive uh, employment proposition and people you know, falling over themselves to become an aged care worker. So. Mm. And do you think that it's interesting that $216 million over three years has been committed to grow and upskill this workforce. And, and that is something that the last time you were on our program, I believe almost a year ago, we were, we were discussing the exact same issues that are consistently the things that are always raised regarding the fact that the workforce is chronically understaffed, underpaid, and ultimately, from what we have seen, quite poorly trained, particularly for the 
work that they have to do. And that $216 million over three years to help grow that workforce includes 33,000 vocational educational training courses for the sector and $91 million to train an additional 13,000 home care workers. But as you've already mentioned, it has to have some sort of incentive, particularly for people with the appropriate skills or those who are wanting to enter the industry in order to gain skills and, and particularly from working in aged care to then potentially move on into other employment afterwards. Do you think that the government have done anything besides obviously throwing money at the problem, which is certainly one way of resolving things, um, but do you think that the government have done enough to ultimately convince people that aged care is a sector on the up and up and that getting in on the ground level now with the new funding packages is is something people should be doing? Do you think there's been enough to give the industry ultimately some positive publicity because the Royal Commission was incredibly uh, traumatic for a lot of people, particularly those who have seen their their grandparents or their parents in aged care to now find out about how horrendous those conditions were and how ultimately underprepared the workforce were. Um, do, do you think that it's important that the government make very clear that this is an industry that is, is shifting towards a positive? Um. Certainly, you use the, the phrase throwing money at it. They they have put more money into the training, but they haven't put more money into the wages. Now, they can't do that directly. There is the Fair Work Commission, and but it's a matter of the government committing itself to uh, joining in uh, a wage case that uh, promotes a higher level of wages that will attract uh, a a highly uh, involved and dedicated workforce uh, who see this as a long-term career. You also mentioned, though, the Royal Commission. And unlike, say, the Productivity Commission report of 10 years ago, the Royal Commission didn't take an unbiased view of aged care overall. It didn't do samples across the full range of aged care. It, It... took the view of let's find the worst possible examples and let's um, examine those. And and sadly, they did find exceedingly poor examples. But what they didn't also highlight was the significant number of very good aged care facilities, which have got a highly dedicated staff, which have got a committed management uh, and have got residents who... um, lived their last years in a very sound, safe and enjoyable environment. So the Royal Commission, for its own reasons, chose to um, bias its its opinion of aged care overall towards the worst cases. And, and you know, unfortunately, those cases could be found. But they're not necessarily indicative of aged care overall. So I think we need to keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. Mm, And uh, some research coming out of HESTA over the last few months has shown that the top three reasons for aged care professionals to leave their employer were a lack of skill development opportunities, wanting to try something different, and of course, low pay, one of the most consistent factors that we see. But when you talk about that lack of skill development, which is a very important thing, particularly in the modern workforce, where do you see the potential for aged care workers 
to develop their skills over their career? Well, that's one of the things that's lacking. There are, there are a couple of features of the aged care industry that don't promote good um, workforce development, professional development skills opportunities. One is the high level of casualisation and the other is the very part-time nature. Uh, so you put those two together and people have to look for multiple jobs to be able to um, bring in a living wage. They therefore don't uh, have a long-term commitment to the particular residents and to the institution. So the high turnover in many cases is very disruptive to the quality of care, to the safety of care, to the uh, quality of life of the residents who trust and want to have a relationship with their carers. So we need to address those sorts of issues as well as improve the wages. So the, the additional funding that goes to training is, is good, but not far enough. But there are other workforce issues that are far more significant. Mm. And when we talk about manning this workforce, in years previous, a lot of the workforce in aged care was from internationals. Yes. Now, questions have obviously been raised about the level of skill that comes with international workers, those who have come to Australia in order to find work and, and end up in the aged care sector and may not necessarily have the skill cap that is ultimately required from the industry. But do you think that when borders open up uh, and international arrivals are allowed in again, that we may start to see the same issues that caused this problem in the first place, where instead of a high demand for skilled employees, the aged care sector will just return to hiring low-skilled, low-pay international workers? Well, I think you have to address the fundamentals, which are the skill and the pay. And therefore, if you are employing people either uh, who are already in the country or who migrate to here, uh, and they are provided with and, and are required to have the skills as well as are paid a, um, a wage that recognises that level of skills, then you know, I wouldn't put a single label across all people who come into the country to deliver care. A number of people who come, whether it's from Philippines or you know, what other other countries, are very caring, very dedicated people. So I'd be careful to not you know, create simplistic labels. I think you have to address wages, you have to address skills, you have to address... Uh, a more um, certain career path, uh, uh, less casualisation, less part-time work. They're the, they're the fundamentals that need to be addressed. Mm. And obviously speaking about wages, the most important development on that that has now been in the works for, I believe, almost six months is the aged care sector seeking a 25% pay rise. Uh, now, obviously, this was championed uh, most by the health services union. Now, if the case succeeds, all aged care workers from carers 
to uh, catering, cleaning and admin staff would see their pay rise rise by at least $5 per hour. Now, obviously, the federal government have said that they're going to stay well out of the way of this and allow the Fair Work Commission to uh, to do their job. Uh, but at the same time, there's a lot of public sentiment, particularly around wages for those industries that have been hit hardest by the pandemic. And obviously, as you have already mentioned, the Royal Commission found some incredible failures within the system that were not only poor form for the industry itself, but were quite emotionally evocative as well. And I believe that a lot of the public uh, saw things and and witnessed things, particularly in the news coverage of the Royal Commission, um, that certainly swayed their opinion. Yes, and they were now, totally unacceptable things that they saw. Uh, that that should never, mm. ever have happened. Exactly. And I think that in, in many ways uh, it was it was ultimately what the industry may have needed in order to get public sentiment on its side, particularly for those workers who feel that they're carrying the brunt of this negative publicity and then at the same time being critically underpaid and and understaffed. So you've obviously had uh, previous experience uh, in commissions, uh, obviously not fair work, but I'm sure uh, the, the sentiment's still the same. Do you think that this has a chance of, of ultimately getting up? Because at the same time, Josh Frydenberg has come out and said that inflation will outstrip wage growth, at least for the next year, and that any sort of changing of, of wages would, would ultimately not work within the current economic uh, sort of model that we have running at the moment to get us through the COVID recovery. But do you think that there's a chance that these workers will actually see that 25% pay rise, which is a very significant margin as well? Um, I'm not um, going to speculate on where the Fair Work Commission may end up, but I think there is a persuasive case for some significant level of increase. Um, but I won't be a, an armchair commentator on what that quantum should be. But I do want to make a, a related and very important point, and that is that if we are um, going to see an increase in wages, an increase in uh, the skill levels of staff um, then and the numbers of staff, then I also want to see greater transparency in the industry where they're held accountable for the expenditure, because this is predominantly public money. This isn't. You know, there, there is some level of of funding by consumers. I'd argue uh, not enough, uh, particularly those who've got houses and have got um, other income that they they clearly need to be paying more out of their own resources rather than the taxpayer funding them. But I, uh, overall, whether it's the taxpayer money or the private contributions of those who can afford to make more contribution. I think the industry needs to be much more accountable because there's a danger of giving the, the same level of additional funding across the board to all providers. Some providers already, A, provide very good quality and, and safety of care, but B, can do it um, by managing efficiently and still uh, make a margin uh, which keeps them invested in the industry, whereas others can't. And so I'd like to see the management and productivity of the facilities 
increased significantly and all providers held accountable for how they spend that money, uh, particularly the care side. And for residential care, you've got to remember there are three bits. There's the the care component, there's the daily living, you know, the cleaning, the meals, those sorts of things, and there's the accommodation. But for the care side in particular, if you have greater transparency of how that money is spent by all the providers and they are held accountable for the A, the money they spend and B, the quality and safety of care they deliver, then I think we'll see some improvements anyway. And who ultimately would... So so it's a a bigger agenda. Mm. We we can't just pick one particular item and say, hey, if we do this, this is the solution. We need to look across a number of issues. And the budget's gone some way, but these are the matters we're discussing today are not in the budget definitely should be. Mm. And regarding accountability and transparency, how do, how would you ultimately see that working? Would there be a, a statutory body that would hold these the industry to account or are you more talking about accountability in the uh, sort of figurative sense to the public and, and um, fulfilling their obligation to their uh, to their Carries. Well, well, they're, they're under the new governance structures. Um, there's additional funding for the Quality and Safety Commission, but there's also an Aged Care Advisory Council. Now, until I see what teeth it may or may not have, I, you know, it's a bit hard to judge just how effective that will be. But you, you can't do anything unless you actually get good data and the good data has to come from uh, the transparency of reporting by the providers on what they're spending, what they're spending it on, or how much they're spending, what they're spending it on, and what's the quality and safety uh, results from that expenditure. So you need that data in the first place, and then you need a good governance structure over the top of it that identifies those who are poorly performing. Now, there's a a reference to the star rating system. Again, until we see the detail of just how far that will go, we don't know whether that will be sufficient to inform uh, potential new residents as to which place to go to. A good reform, I should add, uh, which I've been advocating for some time and did a report on together with Stuart Brown, uh, was to give consumers the funding for residential aged care as they currently do for home care. And that's going to be brought in. Um, so, so you know, there, there are some reforms that are heading in the right direction, but until we see the detail of some of those, it's a bit hard to be confident that enough has been done. So it appears throwing enough mud that some of it will stick has a sound basis in finance. The government's package does a lot for increasing the number of jobs available in the sector, but with slow wage growth, limited career opportunities and an industry on the wrong side of public opinion, it may take more than $18 billion to fix the structural problems in aged care. As Professor Woods makes very clear, finding skilled workers for the aged care sector is the most critical point in moving the industry past the hurt of the Royal Commission. 
The Fair Work Commission, on the other hand, will have the task of determining whether the 25% wage increase championed by the Health Services Union will come to fruition. And that's about it for today's episode. Think Business Futures is produced at 2SER 107.3 FM in Sydney on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation. A big thank you to the University of Technology Sydney's Business School and our national broadcast partner, the Community Broadcasting Association. You can catch all our episodes online wherever you get your podcasts. I've been your host, Max Tillman. Thanks for listening. 